rte.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on One is offered as a podcast at rte.ie slash drama on one. And of course, here on RTE Radio One on Sunday nights. In 2006, Drama on One broadcast its series Seven Deadly Sins with plays from Anne Enright, Rebecca Miller, Edna O'Brien, Jennifer Johnston, Bernard Farrell, Moira Vacanti and Eugene O'Brien. Tonight's play, the final in the series, is named after tonight's sin, Sloth, and is written by Eugene O'Brien. And just a note that the play contains some strong language, adult themes and elements that some listeners may find challenging. Sloth stars Jim Norton and is introduced by the author. There are seven deadly sins, Captain. Gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, pride, lust and envy. Seven. Sloth. When I was approached to write this play, there was only three sins left. All the well-known ones were gone, but Sloth remained, and I knew it was the one for me. How many days have I spent in a room at a desk, staring at the wall, afraid to go on or get down to it, sitting, staring, Sloth-like? So that was what I first thought of, my sometimes very slothful existence as a writer. I thought of a location, the Mespel Flats, where my Uncle Jack used to live, and where my friend Andrew had recently moved into, and I thought of an older, curmudgeonly man who had made a decision to cut himself off from the world and others. I would play him for laughs, his absolute no-man-is-an-island, feck-you-I-am attitude, and dislike of the movers and shakers, as he calls them. But the lighter tone gradually disappeared, and an almost sinister one emerged. Anyway, welcome to the world of this man, whom in the end I never gave a name to. Sloth by Eugene O'Brien I really should get up and face the day. Anyway, I always enjoy watching that movie. No matter how many times I sit through it. Until the next time. Really should tidy up about the place, but then, who's going to see it? I mean, Jesus. And I have this letter to open. Haven't opened a letter in years. God above, couldn't believe I'd actually received one. Haven't had a real letter in so long that I only ever bothered to check the post when I spot a new takeaway menu sticking out of the top of my letterbox. So yesterday, as I was taking out the China Palace's brand-new glossy leaflet, I was amazed to find a letter. Not even a bill, it was a proper letter lying behind it. I took the letter in my hands, and there it was, Suffered and Ducks, a postmark from Australia. My heart almost skipped to beat, but I went on about my business, slipped the letter into my coat along with the new leaflet for the China Palace, and left my building on out to Mespel Road, along the canal, through the hundreds of office people wolfing down their sandwiches, and on to Tesco and Baggett Street. But outside the shop I could see it was packed with the lunchtime rush, 
and the letter was burning a hole in my pocket, so I turned on my heels and I headed straight back along the canal, across the road and back into the flat compound, where I had to duck behind the laundry room wall, as I had spotted, thank God, just in time to avoid her, the one and only Ursula Andrews coming out of the front door of my building. She lives upstairs from me, in number 27. She is the bane of my life, always trying to get me to join all these clubs or old-age pension outings to Glendalock or trips abroad to places like Vienna and such. So, with the coast clear, I was able to continue on into my building and made my way along the corridor, opened the door of my flat, number 10, and went inside. I fished the letter out of my coat and put it on the table. I placed the China Palace one with a pile of other takeaway leaflets in my little kitchenette. I sat down in my armchair, because it is my armchair. I bought it forty-odd years ago, and it's the only piece of furniture that I took from the other house. Usually I turn on the radio for the lunchtime news, but I didn't, because all my thoughts were with the letter. But I didn't open it. It remained on the table. Today, it still remains unopened on the table. I should get out of bed. I should do that much. I'm hungry, really. That's the main reason to get up. After making use of a nice lunch, a simple bit of soup, sandwich, can manage that. But for the tea, I have to admit that I reach most evenings for my little pile of takeaway leaflets. <sighs> Anyway, I like living here. It's a cosy little place. The grounds of the compound are well maintained. I was lucky to get it. Bought it in the 80s before the prices went mad. And the great thing is that here, nobody knows your business. Nobody knows anything about you. Not even Ursula Andrews with all her questions. Keep mum. Oh, yes. Now, today, a little later on, I think I'm in the mood for another Orson Welles film. Of a large video collection and a decent-sized television, my only extravagance. I've always had a huge interest in films. I don't know why. My earliest memories are being taken to the pictures. And afterwards, while well, the other lads wanted to run around and shoot each other in a very competitive way, I always just wanted to run home on my own and imagine actually being the hero in my head. In my room at home, lying on my bed and staring up at the ceiling. Lost in whatever I just watched in the cinema. I used to say that films were a way of experiencing situations and places and life, but you never had the bother of leaving your seat. I always hated sport, which suited me when I was younger. My parents didn't push me and it meant I could spend all my free time at the pictures. But when I got older and joined the firm, Jesus... It was rugby this and rugby that, and if you weren't interested well then, you were always just a little out of the loop. I mean, I got on with all the fellas in my office. Well, the most of them, until it came to the sport and the pubs and drinking with the boss, and I just never took to the drink. I'd seen the way it affected people, and I just never thought that it would suit me. So as a result, on a Friday evening, I would go across the road to the Pembroke with the others, have a glass of orange, but leave early and go on into town to the latest in the Metropole. Do my own thing. It was all fine, except, I suppose, 
until I felt that I should be wanting to meet or at least have the opportunity to socialise with women. Not that I was in any way like the fellows in the office who boasted about this one and that one and kept score. No, I just, well, I was a normal young man and I was beginning to wonder, would I ever, you know? So I did try going out with the others to the pubs and dances, but it was a disaster. So I was really quite down about the whole thing until one lunchtime in Gray's Cafe, I spotted Rita. She was, well, you know, when it happens. It's just... For weeks, I watched her in Gray's Cafe every lunchtime. Watched her crossing the road to the Bank of Ireland where she worked. I even watched as my colleagues chatted her up. Some even went out with her. But much to my delight, she never stuck with any of them. After about a year, she stopped coming into the cafe and seemingly had left the bank. Now, at first, this saddened me greatly. But then I felt it as a kind of relief, really. Now I could try and forget about her. Then, one day, months later, coming out of the Plaza Cinema, I happened to bump into her. It was like a film, really. In fact, that's what gave me the courage when we caught each other's eye. I just kept thinking I was in a film. She was sheltering from the rain. I was going to put my umbrella up and walk on, but then she spoke. She knew me from somewhere, and I babbled something about Grey's Cafe, and she laughed and said that she'd moved branch, and suddenly we were walking along under my umbrella, and we were joking about the various colleagues of mine that had taken her out, and she suggested we duck in out of the rain and go for a coffee in Bewley. So we did, and she talked. I listened. She talked even that first time about how she didn't want to stay in the bank for the rest of her life, that she didn't quite know what she wanted to do, but that she wanted to make a difference in some way. I remember she asked me what my hopes for the future were, and I said that I wanted to go to Hollywood and write for the movies, as God knows I'd seen enough of them. Well, this seemed to please her no end, but of course, I didn't mean it. I was happy that the nearest that I'd ever get to Hollywood was watching Ben-Hur in the Savoy on a wet Sunday afternoon. A year later, we were married, Rita and I. I love the fact that she was actually named Rita. Hayworth and all that. Oh, Rita loved to go out. And she succeeded in making me into a far more social animal. In the early years of our marriage, anyway. We go to the Theatre Royal on a regular basis, which suited both of us. I, of course, loved the film, but Rita, on the other hand, would grow disinterested during the film. I even caught her nodding off in the middle of Bridge Over the River Coy one time, which greatly annoyed me, although I never said anything to her. No, Rita was there for the show afterwards. As well as the Theatre Royal, we went to various dinner dances around the city. Wanderers, Old Belvedere, Temple Oak Tennis Club and all that. Now, at these occasions, Rita was in her absolute element. She loved the big band sound, and she loved dancing all to anything. Foxtrot, old time, waltzes, quick step, and the odd bit of jive. I, on the other hand, did my best, but was never good out on the floor, and would become self-conscious, and really, I dreaded those nights. I liked being married, though. There was a, a kind of routine to it that I enjoyed, a comforting kind of pattern to your life that I found very easy to go along with. 
Of course, I couldn't help enjoying the fact that my work colleagues were amazed that I'd managed to end up with Rita when so many of them had tried and failed with her. But on a Friday, leaving work, a knot would form in my stomach as I knew a brand new dinner dance was waiting that night to torment me. Now, a cousin of Rita's, Jean, was married to this man. And this man was a junior minister in the government. And anyway, Rita was very taken with the two of them and we became a kind of foursome. Going to the dances with them and all that, which was fine. Jean was pleasant, if a little too loud, with drink taken. And he, on his own, was a grand sort of chap. But he, we always seemed to end up in the company of, of a certain crowd at the dances. What bothered me was the way Rita behaved around them. She'd laugh and become loud with them and often would end up quite merry at the end of the night and I would sense a slight disappointment in her when some of them would be going on to a club but she'd be coming home with me. I never said anything. But one night on our way home in the car she started talking about the state of the country, how we needed to develop our economy so as not to be left behind. There was too much emigration and so on and she was obviously hearing all this from the gang of young ministers, the movers and shakers, she declared to me that she wanted to join the political party, get involved, as she put it. I nodded and passed no remarks. But inside, I felt a little sick at the prospect of our marriage routine being interfered with in any way. <clears throat> but I didn't have to worry, not for a while anyway, because a few weeks later, Rita announced that she was pregnant. All thoughts of party politics, joining the movers and shakers, was put aside as little Deirdre Anne was born. Little Deirdre. You see, that's what set me off today, really, Deirdre. The letter. I can't... Not yet. Open it up. Leave it for another day. I'll put on a film... Not Orson, no, something lighter. Uh, singing in the rain for the day that's in it outside. That's what I'll do. I'll settle back into my favourite armchair, draw the curtains, block out the world, and watch that lovely film. Sure, never to bother you ever again. <laughs> oh, Christ, that was without a doubt among the most excruciating moments of my life. Oh, let me sit down. Oh, gather myself. Oh, wait a minute, make sure she's gone. Okay. Woke up today with one of my headaches, searching for the bloody paracetamol, the letter still lying on the table, daring me to open it. I'd had some kind of nightmare too, not clear, but anxiety-ridden, and then a living nightmare happens, right here in my flat. Ursula Andrews called to the door. Again, after persistent buzzing, I let her in, and before I could mention the thumping in my head as an excuse for her to go away, she suddenly started pleading with me to attend some golf club dinner with her. She just came straight out with it. But she'd been more manic than usual. I thought I could get a faint whiff of drink. But her perfume is so overpowering that it's hard to tell. I'm saying nothing, not being given the chance. But at last, she shuts up and is waiting for my answer. 
I shake my head and try to tell her that it's simply not my scene and that I was sure that there must be tons of men with a huge interest in golf who would chat away about birdies and eagles and albatrosses and whatever the hell else they go on about. Look, anyway, I said this about the other men and my lack of affinity with the game of golf and trying to be light-hearted and hope that she'd nod and go away. But no, she isn't moving. Or what's odder, she isn't speaking, which was a first for her. She's staring at me. Her eyes are misting over, tears are welling, and I'm wishing that I could be anywhere else on God's earth. And then she's weeping, bawling, and it's hard to catch what she's saying, something about how she tries her best to get out and join everything, but she can never seem to meet anyone special. But then she, she met me, and she thought it would all work out between us, the two of us maybe going out for a meal, and then maybe on one of those trips abroad. And then perhaps I could move upstairs with her. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. She came towards me and reached for my hand, which she grasped. I could definitely smell the drink off her then. She asked me, did I have any desire to get to know her at all, or was she wasting her time? By now, I was angry at her for intruding and causing such deep embarrassment, but also I couldn't help feeling some pity. But most of all, I felt a kind of nothingness towards her, as if she was although beside me, in another world, cut off. I felt as if I didn't have to deal with her, really. I could wait and do nothing, as if she was in some other movie, and eventually she'd just go. I'd had this feeling before in my life, so I did. I simply waited and did nothing, and sure enough, she had no choice but to turn on her heels and head for the door. She departed, promising never to bother me again. I'm relieved now, but mortified at the whole incident. I'm not surprised at my behaviour. My coldness, or whatever you'd call it. What do I call it? Jesus, give me a break, please. No, it's that letter. It, ah! And Christ, that bloody woman has me gone, yo-yo. Bloody head is killing me. Can't find any blasted painkillers. And I don't want to go out in case she's lurking around the corner. Oh, bed, bed. I'll, I'll take to the bed. Pull up the covers and try and sleep it off. Uh, try and forget it. Forget about it, Deirdre. But I don't want to sleep. Nightmares. So real sometimes I wake up in a panic and it takes me a few minutes to realise where I am. I mean, last night it was something to do with the, the beach... I woke up in a bit of a state, and Deirdre was on my mind, and I thought of her when she was only a child in the cot, and I thought of the time that Rita left me to mind her on my own. It was Rita's first time out since the child was born. She went to one of the party's functions with Jean, her husband, and the gang. I indeed encouraged her to go, pleased that I had a cast-iron excuse not to go myself on account of my little four-month-old daughter. But I fell asleep in my chair. I was supposed to check her throughout the evening, but I dozed off. And when I woke up, I immediately went upstairs and into Deirdre's room and looked into her cot. And then for a moment, I froze. Time stopped. Again, like what I was seeing wasn't real. And if I did nothing, it would all just go away. It was the sight of Deirdre lying face down in her own vomit, in the milk that had once been inside her. 
But on this occasion, at least, my inaction only lasted seconds. I reached in and pulled my daughter out, wiping the sick off her face. She woke and started screeching, but I was laughing because she was okay. Falling asleep when I shouldn't had not cost my daughter her life. When Rita came home late from the function, she was merry and quite amorous. I was going to tell her about the incident, but decided against it. Why upset her? And anyway, things between us weren't the best, even in those days. So me telling her that I had fallen asleep on duty would have been profoundly unhelpful. Nevertheless, the little girl grew up to be a very self-contained child and young adult. Of all our friends and relations children, she was by far the easiest to bring up. This meant, of course, that Rita, confident that Deirdre was, as they say nowadays, a low-maintenance type of child, fell free to pursue her active role in the politics of the party. It began to take up more and more of her time. Now, election time arrived, and it was just utter madness. Posters of Jean's husband all over the front room. Rita was consumed with getting this man re-elected. And Deirdre had just done her leaving certificate and she was waiting patiently for her results, but she was sure that she'd done well. Now, Jean's husband was around a lot, calling in, dropping Rita home from party headquarters, etc., and I let them get on with it. His name was Raymond. Now, it was around this time that... that something occurred that, well... that changed all our lives. And the letter is is, you see, uh, one day I came home as usual through the back door and having spotted Raymond's car outside had avoided the living room as I knew he and Rita would be electioneering in there. I kept out of there as I know, business with the movers and shakers. I took to my armchair in the telly room and I, I must have dozed off because it was only later I found out that it hadn't been Rita in the living room with Raymond. No, she'd been out on a door-to-door campaign. No, Deirdre had been in the room with him. This is the... And he'd... This Raymond had 44 years of age and he'd forced himself on our daughter in the room. He made some sort of pass at her and she'd refused his advances and he'd... Well, it's hard to... He'd been drinking... He was like an animal, Deirdre said. And naturally, Rita left the party, broke off all relations. Raymond was never prosecuted, his word against Deirdre's, and in the end, it never made the courts or the papers, and he was elected. The thing was that, and this was the main reason that Rita finally left me, the thing was that Deirdre kept insisting that I had witnessed the incident, or part of it. She kept saying that I'd seen them in the living room, had seen Raymond pinning her to the sofa and she struggling, but it was so upsetting when she kept swearing that this was true. Now, I put it down to the deep trauma she must have been feeling. And Rita didn't believe her, but the whole terrible incident drove a permanent wedge between us. We bickered when we should have been totally supporting each other and our daughter, exchanging bitter little words of blame... Deirdre withdrew into herself and wouldn't talk to either of us, especially not me. Then one day she packed her cases and claimed that she was indeed going to take up the offer from UCD. We presumed she'd defer it for a year, but no, she was sharing a flat in Ranela with friends, and that was it. 
Myself and Rita were now left to face each other in the house. It was ridiculously obvious that Rita and I were finished. I mean, one particular fight had ended with her saying that she had run out of patience with me, that for years she'd hoped that I'd show some ambition, but that I was dull, lazy, and that I buried my head in the sand. I shook my head and was about to walk away when she started to shout that indeed maybe I had, in fact, witnessed the incident with Deirdre. I didn't let her finish the sentence. I stormed to the bedroom and started to pack. And I moved in here around two months later. Deirdre dropped out of college before the end and she met some young man and they emigrated to Australia 20 years ago. I haven't seen her since. And I haven't spoken to her. This letter, her letter, is the first that I've ever received from her. Can't put it off any longer. Dear Dad, I have sat down many times and tried to write this letter to you. In the end, I suppose I had an image of your coffin going into the ground and us never having talked. Sorry to be so morbid. I'm not suggesting that you're going to drop dead or anything. It's just I was also thinking of my two boys, Sam and Alex, who are age 14 and 16 now. I'd hate them never to meet you or at least talk to you. My husband, Danny, has also encouraged me to write. He really is the most wonderful person, and sometimes I think that without him I mightn't have survived what happened to me. Anyway, I don't want to go into that here. I have talked to Mum about it on the phone. She believes me now. She believes me when I tell her that on that terrible day you came to the living room door and saw what that man was doing to me and you simply walked away again. Over the years I have asked myself whether I could have possibly imagined you, that in the heat of the moment and being under such extreme stress had caused me to think I'd seen you, but I remained convinced you were there. Anyway, as I've said, I don't want to get into that here, but I do have so many questions that I dearly need to ask you so I can understand you, so I can forgive you. Please consider taking a trip over to us or indeed giving me a ring on the number above, Dad, if you could just try and make the effort. Your daughter. Deirdre. Well, now, Australia's very far. Thirty hours or thereabouts. The sun would be nice, though, and to see those boys, and to see Deirdre. If she could only face up to the fact of her mistake. Maybe I should really go. I owe her. Put things right. Damned if I'm having Rita having all the cosy chats on the phone, the two of them talking about me, believing that I could do such a thing. But to go to Australia would mean having to answer all those questions. Accusations. Go halfway around the world to face up to... Oh, no. Stay here. In my flat. In the compound. 
down the canal to Baggett Street and home again with the messages, without even Mrs Ursula Andrews to bother me. Watch my films, listen to the radio. Lie in as long as I want to. Now, I'll put that letter away. It'll be like I never received it. And after a while, I won't even think about it. I have to deal with it. It'll belong to somewhere else. Another time. Another movie that I've watched. I won't go to Australia. No, I'll stay here because there's no going back. Indeed, there's no going forward either. There's just here. That was Jim Norton in Sloth by Eugene O'Brien. Sound supervision was by Mark McGrath and the producer was Catherine Brennan. And to listen back to Sloth and all editions of the Drama on One podcast, take a look at the website rte.ie slash drama on one. If you've been affected by the programme and you'd like to talk to someone, you can find information and helpful links at rte.ie slash support. The series producer of Drama on One is Kevin Reynolds. rte.ie forward slash drama on one.